This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled York Street, a ghost and a cop series. And joining me from Iowa in the United States is author Jan Walters. Thank you for joining me today, Jan. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Well, you have a, a, a unique background and perspective on the um, on the law enforcement community. Your grandfather, if I uh, understand it correctly, was involved in law enforcement. This book is also set in Des Moines, Iowa, which is a little unique. Share with me how you became motivated to write this book, York Street. Well, my um, I have four generations of men in my family that have either served or currently serving on the Des Moines Police Department, and my son is currently serving. And so my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather um, have served on the Des Moines Police Department. Uh, my great-grandfather was chief of detectives and chief of police back in the 1940s. Incredible. Did you hear stories about the uh, investigations that they were doing at that time as you were growing up, or how did you come in contact with the the genre of, uh, of cop series? Well, my grandmother, um, she, uh, you know, the daughter of the chief of police. Yes. I grew up with her telling me all kinds of stories um, about it. Back in the 1920s, there really was a cat burglar here in Des Moines, and that was the term they used. And um, the women who stayed home at that time were really frightened because Mm. of this burglar breaking into homes during the daytime, which was unusual. Now, when you say cat burglar, are you talking about felines, or actually that is just a generation term, uh, cat burglar? I think I know the answer to that. It was a generation (laughs) term. Right. So it was a a man breaking into the homes. Sneaky to describe their their techniques. Yes, yes. And so... um, my grandmother thought it would be funny to come home from school early one afternoon and scare her mother. <laughs> and so she crept up the stairs to the upstairs, and my grandmother jumped out with a thirty-eight revolver Oops. in her hand. And luckily, nobody was killed. But I, so I've grown up hearing all kinds of stories uh, about the police department, and then, of course, having my husband be on the police department, and now my son, uh, I often wondered if my great-grandfather were alive today, um, what would he think about his, you know, great-great-grandson, who is now serving, and so that kind of formed the basis for the Ghosts in the Cops series. Is this a particular uh, edition, which is your second book, if I understand it correctly, is this a, uh, a composite 
storytelling of uh, multiple things that have happened in your family's history related to uh, police work, or is it one that totally came out of your imagination? It is based on some actual events, but uh, because it has a strong paranormal element, um, it is mostly fiction. Okay, mostly fiction, 288 pages. When you began to write this, was there a specific target, uh, not an audience, but a target story in mind? Did you already have a, an outline that you, you felt uh, might be able to be fleshed out into an exciting adventure and uh, story? I did. Um, my The basis for the story is you've got this very serious cop, uh, Brett O'Shea, who is trying to make detective like his deceased uh, grandfather, who was murdered back in 1933. Mm. And so Brett, being the young cop, he's very serious. He looks at the world in black and white, you know, good versus, versus bad. And he um, doesn't believe in hocus-pocus, paranormal, anything. And so his world is kind of shaken up when this ghost appears um, and basically announces that he's been sent to help Brett catch a serial killer in Des Moines. And so, first of all, Brett, you know, it's a big leap for him to even believe that this ghost is real and has been sent to help him catch a serial killer when he's not even a detective at that point. Mm -hmm. And... The ghost personality is very different than Brett's. The ghost is kind of a mm, smart, Alec, uh, prankster type of guy, kind of irreverent. Right. And so you have this personality clash of these two strong individuals who are, you know, the kind of the key protagonists of the story. So the story kind of kicks off from there. Uh, and they have to figure out how to work together to catch the serial killer, who they also learn in the course of their investigation has supernatural abilities. So they're not dealing with a a normal human being not as, a typical, far, as far as a killer. Not a typical case. You, you, As you begin to write this, and uh, 288 pages is an ambitious uh, project, at least from my perspective. I have a short attention span, and two or three pages <laughs> would be all I could complete. How long did it take you to completely uh, finish this story and get it ready for press? Well, it took me about a year. Um, I pretty much knew where I was going with the story, Um I knew my characters. I mean, I had kind of using some of my own relatives as uh, models, so to speak, as far as personality was concerned. Yes. I knew my characters. I knew what I wanted to do. Um, it's York Street is um, it's not a typical cop detective story. It leans more toward the paranormal, and it's fast-paced. And it has what I would call gruesome detail, but also some rather humorous moments in it. Fabulous. Uh, you have then some action scenes that uh, might really stand out to the to the reader. Is there one that you'd like to share with us, one that you absolutely immersed yourself into and loved writing? Um, yes. Um, one of the key action scenes um, deals with Brett O'Shea and um, the ghost. Uh, who have 
partnered with the chief of detectives. His name is Anders, Terry Anders. And Terry Anders um, is an older man in his 50s. He's kind of taken Brett O'Shea under his wing, so to speak. And so they're tracking down the serial killer, and they're uh, searching a home of a murdered woman and her property. And um, because this has paranormal elements in it, um, Brett's walking along, and he kind of spots a, you know, just an old pitchfork laying on the ground, thinking nothing of it, until the pitchfork begins to levitate. Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) kind of come shooting across the lawn toward him. And um, thanks to the ghost's interference and help, you know, he's not killed. And uh, so, again, for a serious cop who doesn't believe in hocus pocus and the paranormal, you know, if you can imagine his facial expressions, his thoughts at that moment that a pitchfork is flying through the air at him, uh, yeah, so there, there's some, you know, that's kind of humorous, but yes, very suspenseful at the same time. Oh, it sounds as though this might even be adaptable to a movie plot. Uh, I mean, I, I love the way you've described it. There's, <laughs> I love the humor and and uh, and also the seriousness that you have included in the uh, the way you've described that. Would you call this book more of an entertainment read, a fast-paced entertainment read, or is there a, a serious intent be- beyond that? It, it's kind of it's balanced, I think. It, it does have its serious um, moments, and you know when people die and the gruesomeness of cases that you know real life cops have to deal with. Um, I also go into a little bit of detail of what a routine night for a street cop would be like, as far as dealing with you know speeders and kids out for a good time mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's trying trying to show a balance of what a cop's life is really like, but yet bring in that twist of the paranormal world um, and what would cops do if they had to face that. So it kind of puts our hero, Brett O'Shea, in that position. Like, gosh, if there really was a, a paranormal you know, serial killer here in Des Moines, what would he do and how would what he would react he do? to it? You've subtitled this a ghost and a cop series. Is the other book also subtitled a ghost and a cop series? The one that will be coming out in two sixteen is yes. It's the it's a kind of the second book in the series. Wonderful. And um, the, the first book is believe, and it's more of a traditional romance time travel novel. Hmm. You have mentioned Des Moines, and you live in Iowa. Have any of the officers in the city of Des Moines, have they been able to uh, peruse your book and give any kind of feedback, or has anyone else that's in that profession uh, looked at your book? Yes, um, they have. Um, Before York Street was actually published, I took my manuscript to uh, Bill McCarthy, who is currently the Polk County Sheriff in the Des Moines area. He was the former Des Moines police chief for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so I approached him and asked if he would read the manuscript, give me his thoughts, good or bad. And he really enjoyed it. He, what he really liked about it was he thought that it really kind of presented 
a real life cop story, you know, a street cop's job and viewpoint. Des Moines, Iowa is a unique setting for a fictional piece. Not many books have been written that included the city of Des Moines. Are you finding from your readers that this is considered unique? Yeah, it it probably is. I, I don't know the actual count, um, but having the history with the Des Moines Police Department, you know, this is where my roots were and where I wanted to have this story take place. Because as the series evolves, readers will see the kind of development of a paranormal unit within the Des Moines Police Department. So for whatever reason, um, our hero, Brett O'Shea, seems to draw these paranormal entities to Des Moines, and he has to figure out a way of how to catch them and eliminate them. Describe for my listeners the ideal reader from your perspective. Is this something that a teenager, young child should read, or is this a little older reader? You know, this would probably be okay for, you know, I would say 16 on up. Um, As far as there's a couple of graphical murder scenes. Mm -hmm. Other than that, it's more suspenseful. Um, language, I would say, is not bad. And as far as um, sexual scenes, it's very minimal in these books. So romance plays a smaller part. Mm-hmm. So it's more the it's more the mystery, the suspense, with the paranormal. The title of the book, again, is York Street, A Ghost and a Cop Series. My guest author has been Jan Walters. Jan, I know some of my listeners will want to get a copy of this and uh, also keep in touch. How do they do so? The book is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and lots of other websites. And it's available in ebook, paperback. And you can also find out uh, the upcoming books on my website, which is www.authorjanwalters.com. Excellent. Jan, you mentioned you have a second book coming. Uh, You have not mentioned the title yet. What is that? The next book in the Ghosts and the Cops series is titled Red Sunset Drive. Red Sunset Drive. Is it also set in Iowa, in Des Moines? It is. Excellent. Find something that works, stick with it. That's right. (laughs) Enjoyed visiting with you. This is a nice teaser to get people interested. Hopefully they'll buy lots and lots of books and help you progress as an author. The title again, York Street, a ghost and cop series. My guest author, Jan Walters. Thank you, Jan, for joining me today from Iowa in the United States. I hope you have a great and successful career and look forward to visiting with you in the future. Thank you very much. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. 
Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Truth and Consequences, and joining me from near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is our author, Ralph E. Carlson. Dr. Carlson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jay. This looks like a complicated read. I understand you have a background in mathematics and analytics. What would you say is the general theme of Truth and Consequences? Well, uh, I, I'm a former professor of mathematics at Kirsten College. And uh, the idea behind this is that we look at statements, uh, which we can call propositions, and those propositions have a truth value. They're either true or they're false. And then look at some of the consequences if the proposition is true or if the proposition is false. So that's a different approach to the basic subject that this book covers. And uh, I, I just came up with that. And uh, uh, what prompted this whole book was about nine years ago, the Center for Vision and Values at Grove City College held a conference on creationism, intelligent design, and evolution. Mm -hmm. And I attended that conference and got really interested in those topics and ended up reading about a dozen books on them. And uh, one of the things I came up with was the evolutionists claim that all life has evolved from simple life forms over millions of years, and they are very adamant that this claim has been proven to be a scientific fact. Right. And in reading those books, uh, I I discovered two well-known deficiencies in their so-called proof, and that is that they have no explanation for the origin of life, which is necessary to start the evolutionary process. And secondly... The fossil record does not support the existence of the many transitional species that would be necessary to transform from simple life forms to the complex life forms we have on Earth today. But as a professor of mathematics, one thing that I constantly emphasize in my classes is when you're trying to prove a statement, you have to use logically correct arguments in that proof. Right. And I discovered that the evolutionists do not use a logically correct argument in their so-called proof. And that's to illustrate that, or to I, I use an example from Major League Baseball, but to explain that, consider the following two statements. Statement one, two species have a common ancestor. Statement number two, two species have common characteristics, such as molecular genetics. Mm-hmm. Now, if statement one is true, then statement two is true, and science has proven that. So if two species have a common ancestor, they have common characteristics, such as molecular genetics. But their so-called proof reverses that argument. Their proof states 
that if two species have common characteristics, such as molecular genetics, that proves that they have a common ancestor. Okay. And that is not logically correct. So look at it, uh, the following example. The fillies feed the cubs. Statement number one. Statement number two, the fillies scored at least one run. Well, if the Phillies beat the Cubs, then the Phillies had to score at least one run by the rules of Major League Baseball. However, using the approach that the evolutionists use, they would reverse that. If the Phillies scored at least one run, then the Phillies, that proves the Phillies beat the Cubs. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that back in 1922, the Phillies scored 23 runs and still lost to the Cubs 26-23. Interesting. Now, now, what what uh, I looked at, you know, creationism, intelligent design, and evolution are approaches to answering two questions that are closely related. The first question is, does God exist? The second question is, what is the source of life on Earth, and in particular, human life? And the approaches to answering that are creationism, intelligent design, and evolution. Well, I came up with the idea of transforming those questions into propositions, which are statements that are either true or false, and then analyze some of the consequences of their respective truth values. So because there are so many interpretations of God, I, I transform the first question into there's an infinite intelligent entity. If that's false, what are the consequences? Well, every religion that believes in an infinite intelligent entity, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, would be false. If that's true, then that leads to transforming the second question, what is the origin of life on Earth, and in particular human life, into the proposition, the infinite intelligent entity created life on Earth, and in particular human life. If that's false, then there's no inherent relationship between that entity and human beings. If that's true, so if both of those propositions are true, that leads to a third proposition, is life after death. If that's false, then you really want to ask the question, why did that entity create life on Earth, and in particular human life, in the first place? If that's true... So if all three propositions are true, that leads to a fourth proposition. Jesus, as described in the New Testament, lived some 2,000 years ago. If that's false, Christianity is not a valid religion. Now, if all four propositions are true, then I look at evidence that God exists and is active in the world today. And I cite some circumstantial evidence. And I also cite the experiences of three people that I know personally. And their experiences can be summed up with the words, undeniable prevails over inexplicable. And uh, I don't want to go into the three particular Sure. Your, de your design on the book, then, is uh, very similar to a, an attorney presenting his case. Yeah, I guess it would be. I, I don't didn't think of it that way, but uh, I guess that might, might well be true. There's a logic, there's a logic to, to faith from your perspective and what you have shared in your book. 
Oh, absolutely, yes. And who do you hope to, to connect with on your book? Would you consider it a difficult read, or is this one for the thinking man who is not, you know, not ruled by his emotion or her emotions? I, I don't think it's that particularly difficult of a book. I try to explain things in, in words that, you know, a non-mathematician or a non-legal scholar um, could understand, and uh, I've, I've had some good feedback on it. But it was very understandable, and it was a different approach, and one that a lot of people appreciated. You have you have approached this differently. You didn't set out to disprove uh, creationism necessarily, or to or to prove it. Uh, how did you? What was your 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 style or your type of uh, of approach? Well, uh, as I said, I. I Decided it was very difficult to prove scientifically creationism, intelligent design, or evolution. And uh, this other approach says, okay, if we can't prove it, what can we understand about it by looking at consequences if these statements are true or if these statements are false? And I think if you look at that, and you, you, you have to have faith to believe one way or the other, that uh, if you do believe in these these propositions are true, then you really uh, want to strengthen your faith and you want to really uh, serve God. Absolutely, you have 109 pages total in your book, so it's not a very lengthy read, but it outlines some very positive and uh, provocative arguments, and part of it that you have approached is that you feel perhaps uh, or maybe as a uh, believer that there's a threat to Christianity. How does that come about? What's happening in our world today that is a threat? Well, I I cite a number of examples looking at America, uh, threats to Christianity in this country, and uh, there's many of them. And then I look at Jonathan Kahn, and what he said. Now, Jonathan Kahn looks at what happened to ancient Israel thousands of years ago. They were invaded by Assyria, and Assyria was winning, and then they suddenly backed off, and after they backed off, the prophets warned the Israelites, you've got to repent or face destruction, because Israel had fallen away from the promises that God made to them and uh, the responsibilities that they had in response to that. And 10 years later, Assyria again invaded Israel, conquered them, and exiled many of the Israelites uh, to other parts of the Middle East. Well, Jonathan Kahn looks at that, and then he compares that to what happened in the United States on 9-11. And he cites nine aspects of what happened to ancient Israel that are very closely paralleled with what happened on 9-11 in the United States. So... And he's he, he, and Jonathan Kahn, just for those who don't know of him, he is uh, he can be searched out online. He is actually a rabbi, has a Jewish faith background, and uh, would be... Com- called by some an evangelical Jew. He has an overview of um, perspective of Israel, of prophecy and end-time events, for those who know what that means, uh, that's different from most out there that are speaking out in our society. That's correct. 
And uh, that leads me to the fifth proposition, that the 9-11 attack was a warning by God to the United States to repent or face destruction. And that is a very scary thing. And uh, if you look at what happened shortly after 9-11, there was a, a, an attempt at a revival in the United States, and people were um, you know, concerned about that, and it didn't last too long, and uh, we're still faced with a lot of problems in the United States about attacks on Christianity in particular. Absolutely. There is a, an outright attack. Those of my listeners who are people of faith, you know that the church and ministers, especially in the Judeo-Christian faiths, are under attack. Now, you have titled this Truth and Consequences, so there is uh, not only the the layout of at least the implications of creationism uh, versus evolution. What are you hoping will happen to the reader once he or she gets a hold of your book? What is your goal? Well, if if they're non-Christians, I want them to start thinking about what is said in there and thinking about God and hopefully becoming more open to uh, worshiping and learning more and uh, becoming a Christian. If they're already a Christian, I want to get them thinking about some of these subjects and hopefully uh, they will be stronger in their faith and uh, also reach out to other people. How long, uh, did it, how long did it take you, Dr. Carlson, to complete this, this book, and do you have another I, one in the future? I took, well, I started this conference I referred to uh, was about nine years ago at uh, Grove City College, and uh, I spent a lot of time reading about these things, and then I kept getting these ideas, which I happened to think were messages from God to, to look at this, like, for example, transforming the questions into propositions and then analyzing the truth values of those. And uh, after the first two propositions, you know, where do I go from there? And I got to his life after death, and then that led to Jesus, as described in the New Testament, who lived some 2,000 years ago. And uh, there's some pretty strong evidence of that. And um, one, one thing... Uh, Hugh Ross is an astronomer, and I cite something related to his work. He has a, a list of 128 parameters that must lie in a very, each one of which must lie in a very narrow range in order for a planet to support human life, or not just human life, animal life, or even life in general. Yes. And he looks at the probability that all 128 parameters lie in these appropriate intervals so that life could exist. And he estimates the probability of that to be 1 divided by 10 to the 166th power. Now, to get an idea of what that probability would mean is... People are familiar with the Powerball lottery. Mm -hmm. It would be equivalent, approximately equivalent, to winning the Powerball lottery 20 times. Incredible. Buying one ticket each time. And he also estimates that there are 10 to the 22 planets in the universe. So the probability of one of those planets satisfying these 128 
parameters, uh, you know, in the narrow ranges possible for life would be equivalent to winning the Powerball lottery 17 times, buying one ticket each time. Amazing. Now, if somebody won the Powerball lottery twice, would anybody think that was a coincidence? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I don't think so. So, now, we know that there's one planet that supports life. So, using his figures, the probability of that is so small that it didn't happen by accident that this planet was uh, created by a creator and that uh, that's pretty strong evidence if he's even if he's off by trillions um, you know this planet doesn't exist by coincidence phenomenal there's also a, th- th- those that do study of Old Testament scripture and uh, related to the coming of Jesus Christ also will find there's about 125 prophecies specific prophecies related to his first coming and uh, the infinite possibilities of some human recreating that or perfecting that when there was a little education and universities were very rare is uh, is also infinitesimal and uh, i mean yes. just just impossible for a human in his own intellect to create that uh you can tell what side of the uh, the aisle i might sit on the title <laughs> of this book is truth and Cons- and and consequences my guest has been dr ralph E. Carlson, Dr. Carlson, where do we get copies of your book? Uh, you can actually, I can send you one if you email me and uh, send a check in for $15. Uh, well, you can email me at recarlson.gcc at tcc.edu, uh, Grove City College. Uh, I still have my email address there. Uh, and you can send me your address, and I can send you tell you where to send a check for fifteen dollars, and you can get it. Or else you can get it at uh, Amazon or at uh, the publisher iUniverse. Excellent. And I think, do you have a website that's uh, been developed yet? Yes, it's uh, Carlson Book www.carlsonbook.com. Phenomenal. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your insight. Uh, I hope to hear from you in the future with maybe a follow-up book, and it's been a pleasure visiting with you. Well, thank you very much, John. It's been a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to the living room a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. 
Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Our Emotional Footprint, subtitled Ordinary People and Their Extraordinary Lives. And joining me from California is our author, Salavine Memdi. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. My pleasure, absolutely. This is a great book because of the content. It also is fascinating to me, your your family history, your story. Your father, was it Lithuania that your father was born in? or Tell me a little yeah. about his history. My father was an impoverished uh, young man in a, in a, what was called a shtetl, like Anna Tefka from uh, my, my, my fair lady, from uh, Fiddlers on the Roof. And uh, with a lot of uh, pogroms, anti-Semitic activity, and poverty, and cold, and then the Nazis came. It was not a pretty picture. And uh, he escaped uh, around the in his twenties to Canada, mm. and uh, met my mom and uh, started work as actually as a bricklayer. He had no education really, but he was a, a the why he is my sort of hero is that he was self-taught and very cultured and very thoughtful, but mainly very kind to others, mm. interested in people, um, and and uh, generous. That is, he 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 wanted to make people feel good and encourage them to accomplish things on their own. Anyway, he was that kind of hero for me. That's, that, and, uh, that's a wonderful and talent. One, one last thing about sure. him is that he, he could have been a very, very bitter man. But he wasn't. He was the opposite. He was, and people just, he attracted people around him because of his smile and his interest and his warmth and his genuineness, his authenticity. So, um, and he was, as I will say, uh, in spite of this wonderful, uh, these platitudes, he was an ordinary man. He wasn't a celebrity. He wasn't a major success. He ended up with bankruptcies. He had really tragedies in his life, but always very positive. And then I heard this music called um, Fanfare for the Common Man by, um, it'll come to me a moment. This is an old age talking. Mm-hmm. Aaron Copeland, yes, a terrific, Copeland. terrific uh, American composer who was very similar to my father's background in a small town in Lithuania, came to Philadelphia as a child, spoke no English, and provided extraordinary music. But he wrote something called Fanfare for the Common Man, he called it. it was He did it for FDR during World War II, who wanted him to write a, an overture for uh, the, the uh, generals uh, leading the war in the European theater. And he said, no, I'll write it for everybody, every American. Mm. And he wrote Fanfare for the Common Man, which just inspired me. So that's why, to get a long story short, why I wrote the book. Because it's about uh, ten, quote, ordinary people, and we just scratch the surface of anybody's life. You find extraordinary successes and failures and loves and losses. Everybody, without exception, I say that, even you, and I don't know you, and me and everybody I know and I've met in my work in research and clinical work. So that's a long introduction. Well, it's a good introduction because your father had an, I would call that an extraordinary talent as well. Being able to relate to other people is a, is a wonderful skill. Do you think that came from his parenting? I mean, from his parents or, or from his history? How did it develop? No, no that's such a terrific question. If, if that's the, you know what? That is a, a question that's dealt with somewhat in the book, but it, it's something, it's something <clears throat> it, it did not, certainly did not come from his parents. They mm. lived a stark life. There were nine brothers and sisters in a single uh, clapboard house with one pot-bellied stove. A father was um, a mother had a severe depression, and father was out working twenty-four-seven. 
that barely saw him, and also a, uh, a manual laborer. So it wasn't that at all. It was that he just felt grateful for whatever he had. Gratitude, which is an important word we, we don't spend enough time thinking about, for himself. Uh, gratitude for whatever came his way. And it, he was like that till the day he died at the age of 91, about a decade ago. And um, I, I never... Uh, I never forgot that, that lesson of life from him. But that's a terrific question of why did he have it. Um, I knew a lot of his brothers and sisters who had spread over the world when they escaped from uh, Europe during the war. Um, and they were somewhat similar, but not to his extent. He was, like, hmm. uh, there was a, a gem of personality. Very May good question. Really. Well, maybe, maybe it's because he moved to Canada. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm a Canadian, so lucky. you know how that is. Yes, you have uh, broken down or sort of outlined your book with the uh, four Bs, uh, being, belonging, believing, and benevolence. Those yeah. are, are the character foundations or the foundations of, of your book. Would that be a, the right way to describe that? That's a couple. Uh, the, there are three foundations. One is the four Bs, which I'll get to in a second. One is resilience which is something I've studied uh, for many years of my life about how resilient human beings are to come back from uh, setbacks, and we all have setbacks. And the third is, in fact, our emotional footprint, and that's part of my father. The emotional footprint is what we bestow on other people, not the money and the material goods, but what is the mood that we instill in other people when we're here and after we're gone? It not I don't mean only in terms of what have we lost, but was there a kind of a, an effect on the emotional atmosphere around this person? Mm. And I know there are people like that. I, I see them every day. I work with them. Um, and there are some that provide a kind of positive emotional footprint and others that provide, um, frankly, a negative emotional footprint. The four Bs I took from, I was studying young people who joined cults and then other kind of relig uh, religious and other kind of heavy belief movements, and then I also studied elderly people, and when they, all these people of any age look at the quality of their lives, they look at not how many toys and baubles that they have gathered, they look at four things. They look at what kind of a person was I? Am I? Am I? Not was I. People even mm -hmm. now. At the, you look in the mirror, and do I like this person? Do I respect this person? No guile, no mask. This is what I see. I see him or her with all our flaws and frailties, and I still uh, respect that person. So are you, do you feel that way about yourself? Do you feel grounded? Are you putting on an act for everybody? Belonging is, do you feel that you're part of an integral part of a group? Could it be a family, uh, a church group, uh, colleagues at work, but very close. You feel that you're invited in, you're respected, appreciated, you're a cog in an important wheel, and you feel that you share with them and you yourself values and uh, comfort and that sense of total unequivocal acceptance. The third is belief, and I don't mean necessarily, it could be in a deity, in religion or God, but belief in a value system, right. in a belief in uh, principles of living that are beyond... Uh, everyday life, beyond the material, beyond the rat race, beyond the frenetic pace of our lives, but a, a kind of uh, issue of, to get to really existential meaning of life. Why am I here? Uh, what do I believe in? What is the purpose of all of this? Am I, what kind of person am I in terms of my everyday behavior? And then the last is benevolence, and that has to do with our emotional footprint. It's kind of to sum all the things up, is 
have I been good to people? Have I created a, 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 a generative environment for others, for, for my patients, for my clients, for my mm. colleagues, for my customers, for my family, for my children, all this? Or have I not? And can I change in the course of life? And I, these are replicated time and time again. I can't tell you how many people have written to me over the years and alluded to these four Bs. Well, but- Resilience is the last before our emotional footprint is how empowered we are. And I know people who've come from absolute uh, destitution and have turned their lives around. And so it's not a... And I, I use my father's that experience. There, 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 he had nothing. Absolutely came to North America without a penny in his pocket, speaking no English and no education and no skills. And he spawned three children, a, a loving wife, a, a, a terrific lesson in life to everybody who knew him. And people nowadays tell me, I knew your father when. It's true. I remember when I was uh, in uh, back in, in college, and they met my, my father, and they said, oh, geez, he was just wonderful. That continued right through the next, well, at that time he was in his 30s, I guess, but until uh, he, he had 60 more years. Incredible. So that's what the book is about. Yeah, the four Bs, resilience and um, uh, our emotional footprint. And I have to say, I used 10 people on a um, railway car I, I made it up but I, these are real people who are ostensibly ordinary people and then I tell the life stories of each of them and then we look at the life stories from these things you and I have just been talking about but each one of these they're very different people different ages <clears throat> this is their whole life story and it's like a, a bio novella uh, tell the story um, and uh, their highs and their lows their setbacks their successes their pains, their sins, uh, different social classes, different colors, different ethnic groups, uh, different countries. Uh, but they're all in this Amtrak train, supposedly. Hmm. And uh, that's what the book is about. They, they become the centerpiece. So it's not just lecturing about the four Bs and resilience in our emotional footprint. It's in living color. These, four, these ten people are amazing people. They're real people. Now they're fudge, so nobody will know who they are. But I know them yes. extremely well. Let me let me ask you this question: In our culture, there is not a lot of examples of the positive things you've outlined in your book. Do you think selflessness was also an ingredient in these people? Yes, uh, and I think that people are talking more about that. It's but that goes with benevolence. Yes, And uh, it goes with all of those things. When you're well-grounded, when you don't have to uh, put on an act for people, you don't have to be brash or uh, arrogant or a bully or any of this, where you can accept yourself and learn about yourself and try to improve yourself, when you can be grateful, gratitude for what you have and not carping all the time what you don't have, when you have some kind of principles about your life and when you are a kind soul, then in fact you're exactly right. Uh, the word you use is what again? Selflessness. Selflessness. It has to do with all of this put together. And I think it's an important core part of the four Bs. But a selfless person is all of these things. He or she is not just benevolent. But a selfless person also has a credo that he or she believes in. They're... A selfless person is grounded in, in the sense that they feel self-accepting as well as um, accepting of other people, tolerant, cooperative, respectful, all the things, frankly, 
that are lacking in um, their increasing incivility, I think, and certainly in the uh, blogosphere, absolutely, trolling is terrible, Mm -hmm. but also in politics, the current campaign at times gets very ugly. Right. And, And unfortunately, I think it serves as a kind of bad example for our youth. This is the way we're supposed to behave. Look at the leaders behaving True. that way. The other they, culture. They, they uh, denounce each other. They call each other names. They're disrespectful. They're, uh, it's a hell of a way to live. I hope we don't make that a... a, <laughs> a kind of a chi- childlike or childish approach to life is what it looks terrific, like from the outside. way to put it. Absolutely. Terrific. You yeah, have uh, ten, 10 or 12 people that you, you have highlighted or focused on. Which of the stories do you think is uh, the one that really grabbed you the most and uh, you feel would be the most inspirational to share with my audience? God, it's, it's a tough question. I've got to ask. I don't even have the book in front of me, but I know them all so well. Um you want a male or a female? <laughs> well, I'll, we'll take one of each if you've got. Well, okay. well uh, let's 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 take the uh, well. Let's take the guy who's the cover of the book is. A, I don't know if you have it in front of you. I do. Um, it is. A, it's called Crossroads. I have it hanging. It's a, from a painting I have hanging uh, in my house, and it, it's done by the guy who's the, the I call him Neville DaCosta in the book. Um, that's not his real name, but he was an extraordinary. He died just a few years ago in his late seventies. But he had a tumultuous life. Um, he was a man born in, in uh, Jamaica and went to, came to New York in, in the rough streets of Jamaica and abandoned by his father and uh, mother often had to d- demean herself, demean herself to support her kids mm. uh, by prostituting herself. Um, it was a rough drug scene. It was violent. They came to New York impoverished in the slum. He was um, a very tall boy, but he was interested in uh, guitar and art and not in athletics and not in drugs and not in things like that. And so he was bullied a lot. And uh, also his mother was gone working two domestic jobs simultaneously to just so they can afford a little apartment. And he kept developing his art and his um, um, guitar playing, uh, classical and folk and jazz, uh, and he we frequented those scenes. Those scenes, unfortunately, in New York at the time, in the 50s and 60s, um, were riddled with drugs. He got involved heavily in drugs and had to go to rehab. He had two or three marriages. <laughs> mm. uh, I, 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 I laugh because uh, this is just a the tip of the iceberg of his life. He lived uh, after one of his marriages broke apart and he was humiliated. He went to France and he got hepatitis there and uh, he, he fell in love and was abandoned by uh, a woman who just dazzled him and he never forgot her and wrote, wrote, painted an extraordinary painting of her and came back. And he, uh, his, his kids had been estranged from him from his, a couple of his marriages. Um, but I met him um, in his 50s, and he was—he has been—he had been through rehab. He had been through a, a stint in prison in, in France. He had been through a lot of things. And I met this generous, kind guy, full of humor, dry, sober, uh, who'd reunited uh, with uh, two of his, uh, three of his grandchildren, and one in particular, his youngest. A grandson became his um, companion because the boy's own family was falling apart. And actually, he helped raise him 
for the last 20 years of his life, this guy's now a graduate of college and doing as a, in a profession, actually. But uh, the story is so full of uh, remarkable twists, turns, unexpected changes, and that goes for all of our lives. You know, life's rolling around for, for a time. Don't get too comfortable because mm-hmm. if something's going to happen, that you, there, there, this old expression from Germany, uh, which means man plans and God laughs. Right. Because you never know what's going to happen around the corner. So this is um, Neville DeCosta. I was just going to give you his real name, but I, <laughs> I, I dropped out of my mouth. It's her. The woman is <laughs> the woman is uh, an overweight, very large woman in a very dreary background, raised in a very dreary background. Overweight girl. Uh, mother abandoned her at the age of five. Uh, her father was a ship steward. Uh, she was pawned off on her grandmother who didn't want her. And these two, uh, she was a young teenager at the time, and uh, or younger than that, actually. I guess she was a pre-adolescent. Um, these two women did not want to be with each other. She was thrust there by her father, who, by the way, died at sea about a year later. Mm. And... Um, the grandmother was uh, didn't want her in the first place, but was paid off. They got to like each other, then love each other. They the, what they had in common was a love of music, and a love of the Catholic Church. It sounds so bizarre. She was dissed wherever she went because she was obese. Um, and made her way, clawed her way through uh, undergraduate school. I'm skipping over stuff, but this is an amazing sure. story. And then law school. And she became a, uh, uh, a lawyer for the Department of Labor, pleading uh, union cases. Um, and she became extraordinarily successful. Had a always was heavy, and but had noticed as she as she uh, went on in her life, the one of her major there were two major issues. One was a lack of love, either as a lover or any friends. But she was kind of dissed by her because of her, she wasn't attractive per se. Right. And the other was her love of God. Um, and she became very active in the Catholic Church. She did meet somebody in her 40s, actually, who became her lover for over 20 years, a married man who would come into town. She met on a, a very uh, tense, threatening uh, legal case for the Department of Labor in Washington. And long story short, uh, she became an activist and is now, she's in her late 60s now, an activist in the movement, to, uh, feminist movement in the Roman Catholic Church. She's been to Rome. Uh, <laughs> these stories are, are beyond belief. Hmm. Uh, she never married. Uh, she's still active in the church, uh, but, but is seen as a renegade by, by some priests. And uh, she feels that she was able to satisfy her need for being appreciated and uh, loved and and sexually fulfilled, all things she never thought she'd have a chance to do. She is a respected person. She's well-known because uh, she put both in her legal work around the world and in um, the the church. And it is, it is such an amazing story. So she's now in her late 60s, started off in, again, the, her parents were immigrants from England and, and kind of impoverished themselves and here she is uh, and there's more to it her mother when she abandoned her she made a trek to Europe once to try to find her lost mother 
uh, used Interpol, used other things, never found her. Her mother took off for the continent to have, pursue a theatric career. I think her mother was actually bipolar, but we'll never know. Never know. So but... that's those, just those two. Mm. There are ten, uh, and each one is a remarkable story. And they're, they're done in a narrative style, too, which I like, and, and you have used the four Bs on each of the stories to tell how those uh, particular aspects of their lives fit into their, their out, the outcome of their life, and also resilience. And uh, I appreciate your sharing those stories. We have 246 pages. Uh, readers, I think you would enjoy this because it's, uh, it's done in a narrative and almost a fictional style, uh, but it is... Uh, based on true lives and uh, true events in uh, people who have had an emotional journey. The title, again, is Our Emotional Footprint, Ordinary People and Their Extraordinary Lives. My guest has been Saul Levine, M.D. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Where do we get copies of this book? Yeah, you can get it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and some bookstores. Uh, I've seen it at a bookstore, uh, but easily ordered, either electronic or, or print version. And I appreciate your calling me for, for this interview. Fantastic. It's great visiting with you. Is there anything else coming up in the future in written form that uh, you might not, want to not share? Not at the moment. Not at the I'm moment. I'm doing a, a biography of somebody who is, uh, has, uh, like the two stories I told you, but even more bizarre. <laughs> and uh, But I'm, I'm, I'm actually circling it right now. Excellent. Well, this is an inspirational book. Readers, you'll enjoy it. Our Emotional Footprint. Ordinary People and Their Extraordinary Lives. Dr. Saul Levine has been my guest. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.